Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the Special Needs Survival Podcast. Today's episode is all about public policy and advocacy. And I couldn't let this year end without talking to you about what have we gotten done in our legislature this year so far in this session, and what can we look forward to or hope for for the spring. So one of my coolest, coolest friends is coming on the episode today, David Goldfarb. He is a director of policy with the ARC of the US and I know him from his former job at the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys leading the way in elder law and special needs. And David had been the policy person there for, I think, like eight years or something like that. So we worked with David to do some um, really good activist stuff and some lobbying to make sure that people with disabilities and the disability community are well served by our senators and our reps. And, you know, through the pandemic, I know we, we can't stop talking about that, but it, it, the pandemic, the reason that we don't stop talking about it is because it literally was an evolutionary moment in time for our community, for all communities, really, but for the disability community, absolutely for sure, has transformed in some good ways and some bad ways, a lot of bad ways but also in some good ways as well. And one of the transformations that we've been through, which I talked to David about today, is the idea of LTSS, long-term services and supports, and also home and community-based services system, our home and community-based services delivery system, HCBS. So, those systems are the origin of having people transition out of institutional living, coming back to the community, but essentially the promise of fully funding community-based supports, that promise was never fulfilled. And that is the conversation that David and I were having in you know, wanting to get a report from him from the Hill on what is going on. So also recently, uh, just two, three weeks ago now, a report came out from the National Council on Disability, uh, which talks about the weaknesses in home and community-based services and that they directly contributed to needless deaths, quote, among people with intellectual and developmental disabilities during the COVID-19 pandemic. And look, we've talked about that on this um, program before. Because there hasn't been the full funding or the full investment, if you want to think about it that way, in home and community-based services, people throughout the country are spending years on waiting lists. And I don't know what you call it in your state, here we call it prioritization. It's a waiting list. Let's be real about that. We have people waiting two decades or more here in Massachusetts to get a funding package of support. And even that funding package is almost never what it really needs to be to fully support someone's life. But because of this limited investment, During the worst days of the pandemic, institutional settings and community-based group settings um, did not have the proper staffing and support that they needed during that time. So congregate settings were impacted in a just a disproportionate and devastating way. Social distancing wasn't achieved. Um, There wasn't any place for people to transition out of the setting. They were basically trapped. Um, The report says there are currently about um, just over 800,000 people with disabilities on waiting lists around the country for home and community-based services. But 
that's only the people that we know about. The demand is probably exponentially more than that because the report also found that 14 million Americans need community-based services and almost half of that, over 40%, are under age 65. So we're not talking about the elder population. As a result of this, people under the age of 30 account for the fastest growing group of nursing home residents. I don't know if you saw the movie, The Peanut Butter Falcon. Um, it was a great indie film, so well done. And it was about a man with Down syndrome whose family had put him in a, in a nursing home because, and he was a young man, but there was no place else for him to go. There was no funded apartment and supported apartment for him. There was no uh, group home for him to go to. So a nursing home was the only place that would actually get paid for because Medicaid requires payment for services if people need them in an institutional setting. So the peanut butter falcon um, raised a lot of questions. I actually spoke to, I think, you know, handfuls of people about this. And someone asked me, why was this young person in a nursing home to begin with? And I, and I just like did the gobsmack, gobsmack on my forehead because, you know, I realized that people outside of our disability community and even many people in our disability community do not understand how the institutional bias works. You can get these institutional services paid for because they are required by law under Medicaid law to cover those supports if you qualify for them. But there is no mandatory coverage for community-based settings. There just isn't. So now let's talk about the severe shortages of direct support workers or direct support professionals. So direct care workers um, and affordable housing are really two of the overarching reasons that the long-term services and supports system is so fragile and many people are neglected and are not served in the way that they would choose for themselves. Um, so the National Council on Disability through their report is calling on Congress to enact legislation within the next year to make home and community-based services a mandatory service under Medicaid, not if it can be funded, and add significant funding to this program, along with other changes. There's been a push in many ways and for many different uh, spaces to make home and community-based services and long-term services and supports really a, you know, a priority and to get it in, in front of people who normally would not be looking at these kind of issues in our community. So I talk a lot about institutional bias on this program and hopefully you understand by now what I mean by that and how that really is so impactful in preventing people from really living their best life and from having their voice and their choices honored, their voices heard and their choices honored. You cannot have a person-centered plan if you don't have the checkbook behind it to pay for that plan. You can sit down and plan all you want with somebody and say, that's great that you wanna live in your own apartment with a service worker or a support person and that you want a case manager to assist with some healthcare decision-making and you don't wanna be under guardianship and all of these things. But if there is no access to housing in the community, affordable housing, if there is no access to direct support workers, if there, and I mean quality too, and trained, and if there is no access to community support programs, 
how is any of this going to happen? I have somebody that's been waiting three years for a job coach. Three years for a job coach. They want to work. They have the ability to work, but they need some support. These are the kinds of things that I'm talking about. There is no way to have a person-centered plan without the financial backing for all of the community-based supports that need to be in place to make those choices happen for people. What they're left with, with is family members who are left to do all of the providing of services long past the time when either party wants that would choose that. And also for many families, long past the time where they can safely provide those services. So there you go. That's the option. Stay at home or go into an institutional setting because that's the only place where the basic safety minimums can be maintained. Okay. Well, after you listen to this interview with David, I hope that you are going to be energized and motivated to pick up the sword and to come and advocate and fight with us to expand home and community-based services and to guarantee long-term services and supports in the community for all people with disabilities. Thank you so much, as always, for listening to this podcast. I love my audience so, so much. If you like what you are hearing, please do me the favor of giving us a five-star review and rating and also sharing this with your network. I would love this podcast, although it is widely heard now, to get out to even more people and to hit the charts in a huge way in 2023. It is on my list of goals. So the next two sessions, we're going to talk about end of year planning and getting the beginning of 2023 started off right. So looking forward to having those conversations with you. And here we go. Well, I'm a little giggly today because I'm so excited to have my friend back, David Goldfarb, who I worked with at NALA, which is the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys. That was a national organization. We have a state chapter too. And I'd been working with them in various volunteer capacities for so many years. And actually, I think that my time on the special needs uh, steering committee was like 13 or 14 years. But David left us this year and he went to the ARC of the U.S. to do some awesome stuff for our disability community. I'm really excited to have him on the show so we can talk about what's going on policy-wise at the end of the year and also what can we look forward to next year. So I know this is a little bit of a crapshoot, David, but welcome. And I'm going to have you just remind us so you have been working with SSI and healthcare or social security and healthcare at the ARC, but now you're going to be taking on a new challenge and tell us what that is. Well, thanks again for having me. It's great to see you again and be with you. Um, yes. So I, I joined the ARC of the United States uh, in March of this year, um, having been at uh, the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys for about eight years, where I started my focus on supplemental security income uh, and the disabled adult child benefit and ABLE accounts and special needs trusts. Um, but I will be making a little bit of a switch um, and um, going to be working more on home and community-based services uh, in addition to things like ABLE accounts. And we're actually looking for someone right now um, for your listeners that uh, does SSI and Social Security uh, policy. Um, and so excited to bring someone new on as well as do some of our healthcare um, so I'm excited to work on home and community-based services. I'll just say I I actually joined NALA at the 15-year anniversary of Olmstead, and mm -hmm. it was so impactful when I joined that I realized there was a whole area of issues that I hadn't thought about because I was so passionate about economic security and health security. Um, mm -hmm. But the issue of institutionalization and people being able to be in the community, just fundamental rights. Uh, really spoke to me, and that kind of set my journey to where I am uh, here now at, at the Ark of the United States, which has been wonderful. Yay. <laughs> We're so glad to have you as an advocate for all of us out here. I mean, Olmstead was really 
such a turning point and at least acknowledging institutional bias. However, I don't know how much, how much progress I feel like we've made because we've agreed that everybody should leave institutions, but we haven't fully funded people to actually live in a healthy and safe way in the community. So, you know, what are your thoughts about that? What are, what are the ARC's thoughts about that? Absolutely. And I think we're in, in that paradigm and it's important to recognize, you mentioned something full funding. And I think there's often a focus on the rights and really the rights can only take you so far because what we're really talking about is dollars. I can say from the arts perspective that the direct service um, support professional crisis is a real crisis and probably our number one issue we hear from our state chapters. And I'm sure it's an issue in Massachusetts. Um, the wages are not competitive. Um, COVID has caused even more people to leave the workforce. And so working to get those wages up um, and those reimbursement rates up so people can have meaningful service is a top priority um, for the ARC of the United States. So one of the questions that I want to explore with you is the fractured system that we work under. Every state has a different approach to waivers, home and community-based waivers, which we'll talk about what those are. Every state has a different system that they operate under for um how they provide support and who pays for it, how it gets paid for. So for example, in California, you have their regional centers, right? And Ohio has county-based programming. In Massachusetts, we are completely third-party vendor-based programs mm -hmm. and services and support. And this is only three out of 50 states. And every state is different. Knowing that, it's so hard to approach a nationwide policy um, or a set of policies and funding, especially where states have choice about what they can pay for or not pay for. So why don't we start by talking about what a home and community-based services waiver is, although a lot of our audience will understand and know that, some will not. And then let's go from there to have this discussion about having set that floor, how do we do better than that? Yeah, I think the most important thing for everyone to understand, going back to the history of Medicaid and um, where we are today, is that Medicaid started off uh, only funding institutional care, and in fact, still mandates institutional care. And so when you hear the word waiver, what that means is to waive the Medicaid rules in a specific way laid out um, by the statute to provide services at home in the community. Um, and obviously, you've had um, great progress um, since 1981 and then 1999 with Olmstead, but we have a long way to go. And so these services are still not in a fundamental way guaranteed uh, under the Medicaid program. They're not a true entitlement the way that um, nursing home coverage is. Yeah. And they're expecting oftentimes, in fact, I think that the statute might even say this, that it must cost less than institutional care. And so it, the dollars are fractions, uh, small fractions of what it would cost for institutional care. And nobody's saying that there's going to be savings for everybody. We're, we, As you said, we focused on the rights of people to be served in their community and to be able to live in their home setting of choice. And following on that, we need to provide the services and supports that they require to live safely and in good health in their community. But if we don't look at, in a global way, what it takes on a case-by-case -case individual basis, I don't know how we're ever going to get to that point where we are safely living in the community. And I know people have said, but everybody's living in the community now. So how is this happening without, um, you know, what you call a net full funding? And in my experience, a lot of people are 
living with family caregivers who are completely overwhelmed. So let's talk about the family caregivers, David. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think that's um, a, a big concern and a concern that um, families are being forced to share some of this, um, uh, some of the requirements that um, should really be done by uh, professionals. Of course, there are many people who might want to care for their loved one, but in many times they're overwhelmed. I know my parents are overwhelmed right now caring for my um, grandfather with dementia um, and need support and services. Um, but that shouldn't be a function of the services you should get um, from Medicaid. And I think, unfortunately, it's often factored in. So, you know, we've had experience in our practice with moving people from institutional settings to a home-based community setting. But the problem is always finding the people to provide that direct service, as you mentioned, our DSSPs, right? So when you live in the community and you don't have a backup plan for when that personal care attendant calls out, you know, what happens? People are not safe at home. How do we make sure that the plans that we are providing will really, you know, truly 360 support somebody in the community? That's a great question. I think um, for the ARC, you know, again, it, it goes back to fully funding these services uh, and the need to have um, the number of staff that can support it. And I'll say that this crisis is happening not just in uh, home and community-based settings, but we're seeing it in institutional settings as well. And so sure. um, some of the work we're doing on Capitol Hill right now is actually cross-setting within the within the um the long-term care system because people recognize that these services are not, um, the reimbursement rates are not being able to pay workers and attract workers. They're losing their competition from places like a fast food even and um, basic um, gas stations, and they can't even compete with those jobs. Right. And so the shortage is very real. And the jobs are really hard. You They're know, very hard jobs. It's, I mean, compared to working in a retail store, which is not an easy job either, but having to do the most intimate personal care for people and having their life in your hands, it's a lot. Yeah. And one of the things to bring it to policy and sort of where, where are we today? Um, you know, unfortunately, there was an attempt to get a transformational amount of dollars into a reconciliation package known as the Better Care, Better Jobs Act, and it's part of the Build Back Better Act led by Senator Casey. It didn't get included, but um, the fight continues. And I would say the good news is that the public is much more aware now of these challenges than ever before, certainly um, as long as I've been doing this, which is not that long, it's been about eight years. But I think that you've seen over time um, the public become more aware that Medicaid provides these services. Going back to 2016, when they were looking at capping Medicaid, people got an understanding. And then again, here, people learn more about what home and community-based services are as, as a general public. And mm -hmm. I think that's something that's really important and that we have to continue um, educating um, not just our members of Congress, but people on who pays for these services and where do they come from? Because right. I think a lot of people... Um, would be your your family members, your your neighbors, or, or would be willing to help if they understood the system. That's right, right. Instead of thinking that everybody on Medicaid is defrauding the government, you know that these are services that are vital to people's health and safety and well being. So important. Um, can you talk to me about the ARC's priorities for twenty twenty three? Yeah, sure. Maybe perhaps before we jump there, I can talk about what we're working on right now for the end of the year. If yes. that makes sense, and then we can talk about 2023 because a lot of what we do in 2023 will be dependent on what happens in the next month. Now we've kind of been waiting. If you read the news, the big thing to focus on is will uh, Congress come to an agreement around what's called an omnibus package? This is where they do a full spending package that there are these individual bills to fund the federal government versus what's called a continuing resolution, 
which just sort of continues the funding from where it was, um, but doesn't make any changes. Mm -hmm. It's thought that if you do this bigger package uh, known as an omnibus, you are more likely to get what are called policy riders. Um, because again, we're talking about government funding, funding of government agencies, but a lot of the things we want to do is actual policy changes. Mm -hmm. And so there's a thought that if you have these omnibus bills, there'll be additional opportunities for policy changes. The ARC has three top priorities, but there's uh, more than that. So I'll, I'll kind of talk about all of them. One aspect and one thing that's been really exciting that we're working on is raising the supplemental security income asset limits. Yes. Uh, these asset limits are $2,000 for individuals, $3,000 for couples. We're trying to get that to $10,000 for individuals and $20,000 for couples and adjust for inflation. So we're making a very strong push there to try to get that included in end of year package. It's very exciting that this is a bipartisan um, piece of legislation. The SSI program has not been updated since 1989. That's when the asset limit both went up and um, things are getting more expensive and people can't save. And one of the things I heard a lot, got a lot of stories on was people wanting to work and that being a major impediment um, for them and their ability to work within the limits of what SSI allows you to work, which is also a very complicated uh, matter as is um, um, that we hear a lot about and are very sensitive to here at the ARC. Well, the let second, me stop you right there sure, before no. you go to the second thing. One thing that people who are listening who maybe are not dependent on public benefits or don't know that much about it need to understand that it's not the small paycheck that you get from Social Security because it is a small check. And if you're working, some of that check gets eaten away. It's the healthcare benefits for the majority of our states that comes with that check. So the Medicaid benefits for people who may be working part-time who will not be eligible for healthcare anywhere else or for comprehensive healthcare, because Medicaid pays for a lot of things that your, you know, what we would call our health connector or Obamacare or whatever label you want to give it, um, those healthcare programs don't cover the kinds of things that Medicaid covers for people with disabilities. So that connection to healthcare is so important that, um, and it's what, how many states? 39 states that have yeah, I, automatic? It, it, most, the, the vast majority are, are automatic. I don't know if Massachusetts is one of those. Or it is, it all is. And all the states around us as well. Okay. So that's why yeah. I often forget how many. I know it's at least four-fifths of the states are, yeah. um, are Medicaid states. So, you know, that is just the key to wanting to have access to Social Security, even if you only get $1 of SSI. This is not SSDI, but SSI. Right. It gets you into that healthcare program that is life-sustaining for many people. And what we see, in addition to that, and I, I don't know if this is a problem in Massachusetts or if you have some workaround fixes, but uh, many people, as their parents age, they end up in what's called the uh, disabled adult child benefit or the mm -hmm. uh, child child with disability benefit, which provides a little bit more than um, SSI, and you can maintain your Medicaid eligibility and get access to Medicare after a 24-month waiting period. Yes. Um, but you have to have gone through the SSI pathway first in order to do it. And so that's an, that's an important fact um, for um, your listeners to be aware of. Um, a, a bill that I had worked on and um, that is an issue is within this disabled adult child benefit, if they had ever worked too many hours above what's called the substantial gainful activity, they can be denied access to that benefit. And so... Um, one thing yes. from the policy level I see is, unfortunately, you have to keep a lot of records. Yes. Um, there's even issues of when you have your child qualified for SSI, when they go to qualify for this, um, the abbreviation is DAC, so people call it the DAC benefit. You have to reapply, and you know the information is just not there, and it's causing a lot of hassle. We hear, we hear yeah. about that a lot um, as well. We um, do so have... 
Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, David. You finish. <laughs> no, I was just going to finalize saying how excited we are about the SSI uh, asset limit. Yes. And be bipartisan, and I hope it can continue to be if we don't get it in this uh, legislative package. It's it's coming. It's definitely coming. There's so much support for it, and it's necessary. Anybody, anybody can understand that having only $2,000 in savings is not acceptable, you know, that anybody can get that. Um, that this is beyond just impoverishing people. So um, let's move on to the third priority, to the second priority, but I'm sure. super excited about this. And I have so much more to say about social security and DAC benefits, but I don't want to take up the whole hour talking yeah, about that. Yeah, so. that's true. Um, the, the next one is called money follows the person. Now this uh, is something that allows Medicaid to pay for trans transition services out of a nursing home um, uh, or, or an ICF and bring people back into the community and allow them to participate in the community. Could be first and first month's rent. It could be some new, uh, some new furniture. It could be helping find their roommate. Normally you can't do that under Medicaid, but the, there is a grant program that allows states to do that and provide some funds to do that. It expires in September of 2023, um, and we're hopeful to make that a permanent feature of the program. So that's one of our top priorities that we're working on right now. Um, that's yeah. just uh, so important. I know that you have, I remember several years ago, you know, you giving me examples of your clients um, that uh, about how, you know, this can be a life-changing um, uh, program for, for many people. So that's a top priority of ours. Definitely bridges the gap. Um, the money follows the person waiver will pay for the ongoing support. But how do you get somebody out and, you know, make all of those plans? Even family members who are, you know, so dedicated can't access all of the services necessary to provide for setting somebody up in their own home at, or in, the, in a community home after they've, you know, been living in a nursing home or an institutional setting. I love this program. I have seen it work for people. It may seem like the numbers are small, but for the people that it impacts, it's a life changer, a life changer. And that what we call the demonstration waiver that we hope to make permanent that pays for those few, you know, bridge supports, it's low dollars and high impact, high impact. Yeah. And as you mentioned, it's, you know, one of the justifications that we try to show is how it's less expensive to live in the community. Part of it's that Medicaid won't pay for room and board, um, but it it provides some savings, which in the world of government, you know, the dollar amounts and people say, well, why aren't things happening? And um, it's very much a question of, of cost and people looking um, uh, at, at these costs. In, in most states, the independent living centers will be the ones who help with these mm. return to the community and the bridge waivers. So they're the place to go for your support and to make sure that um, they can come up with a plan, a transition plan for you. Um, oh my gosh, they do so much with so little dollars. It's amazing. Yeah, the SILs, as they're called, are a great resource and they're great advocates um, here on the Hill. And we've I've gotten to work with a number of them um, throughout the country. And there, there's some really wonderful people and dedicated advocates working there that take um, access to the community very, very seriously. So my concern, though, about these waivers that are helpful in bringing people back into the community we don't have any support, and you know I've complained about this so much, to prevent that move to institutional care to begin with. So, mm -hmm. you know, yes. why, why are we not paying attention to that? And is there any work going on with that? I mean, I, as you know, was very hopeful with some of the funding that was proposed in the Build Back Better plan or the Better Jobs, whatever. I can never mm -hmm. keep these names straight. It had provisions for preventing institutional or, or preventing a slip and um, from community-based services to institutional living. Um, but nobody seems to get that and understand that. 
they, they get coming out of the institutions and back to the community, but what about the prevention? Yeah, and I would love to um, talk talk with you more about that and um, get some of your thoughts. You know, certainly diversion um, and people coming out of hospitals is a, is a big issue and going um, straight into institutions. Uh, and there was a lot of talk, you know, can we make money? Money follows the person does have a time requirement. You have to have been in the institution for a certain amount of time. You know, advocates obviously fought to make that to be a full program of just preventing institutionalization, but, um, and maybe a future version of it will get us there. Um, another issue that we see is presumptive eligibility or the lack of presumptive eligibility for home and community-based services, where if you're in a nursing home, well, you're clearly, you're, you're clearly yes. meeting the level of care needs there, but this, you know, there's a lot of paperwork and things that have to get done for home and community-based services. So that's absolutely something that is part of the discussions um, here in Washington, D.C. But if you have other ideas in that, I would love to talk to you about So many. Them. I mean, <laughs> I think they should model the Katie Beckett waivers personally, because those are institutional prevention waivers, but just for kids. So okay. before I go off on another tangent, David, as you know, I'm prone to do, um, I, I do know that there are some proposed Medicaid regulations that do address a little bit, a little bit about um, institutional bias. And these may not be on your list of things that you were going to talk about today. So I'll pass on this and get to that another time if you are not prepared to talk about that. Hopefully, in a in I th those are the things I'm studying right now. Things like the mm -hmm. settings rule and what will be called the Access Act as well. Um, there's a number of things that we anticipate coming, but I need a little bit more time because I'm still doing uh, a lot of Social Security work. And it just uh, this week was my first week in uh, back to home and community based services after. Uh, All right, uh, I'm going to uh, give you a pass and a reprieve on that. <laughs> So these proposed Medicaid regulations do seem like they're going to pass and they do address a little bit about the presumption issue where if you are in institutional care, you can guesstimate and, and make some assumptions about what your upcoming expenses are going to be. Yeah. One of the big things about these proposed regulations is that they're now going to allow community-based folks to have that same um I don't know, generosity, <laughs> um, because, yeah. you know, we have regular and routine expenses as well that we can count and we can prove that they would be upcoming for the next nine months or six months or three months, whatever your case would need to be. And this will help with waivers. It'll help with um, people who are trying to meet a lifetime deductible or a six month deductible, depending on what kind of care they're looking at. So I know folks in the audience, we're getting a little bit into the weeds and I'm sorry about that, but I do want you to know that there are people who are looking at this institutional bias issue and chipping away at it, you know, one thing at a time. And it, it's important that we keep educating everybody in our community so that they know what to fight for and what to ask for. All right, David, third priority, tell us about yeah. it. Third priority um, deals with an educational center in Massachusetts that uses what's called electroshock therapy, an extreme form of aversives on people with disabilities, um, which I believe the UN has codified as uh, torture. Um, and so there was an FDA ban on this electroshock device. Um, there was litigation in court, which threw out that ban. And now the Congress is hopefully poised to take it up. There's only one place in the United States that does this and makes use of um, these devices. The There was part of what's called the FDA user fee. So the FDA gets paid through user fees by pharmaceutical companies. There was a reauthorization of that. The House version included this. The Senate version in the committee included it. But when they extended it, they got rid of all policy, what are called, again, we talked about policy riders because it's not about the actual user fee. Um, this was excluded, but so is everything else. So it, it's not necessarily against the particular policy. So this is one that I'm hopeful that uh, could end up in, in end of year, an end of year package. It should not cost any 
dollar amount. Right. It's supported in a bipartisan basis. So I would hope that this is something that they could get done. Um, but unfortunately, um, you know, the treatment of people with disabilities uh, in this country is not what it should be. And this is um, perhaps one of the more extreme examples of that. I cannot believe we are still talking about this. I'm horrified. And, and advocates have been fighting for a long time to get this stopped. This is, I hope, this is the closest we've ever been at the congressional level. So I am, I am very hopeful. But what I'm not hopeful about is where Democrats and Republicans are on coming together to do a lot of good work. Because again, if there's bi there can be bipartisan policy, but there has to be an opportunity to pass legislation, and you see mm -hmm. certain things break down. And so now we, get... we we just with the last Senate race, didn't we get fifty one? Yeah, um, fifty one and forty nine. Is that what it worked out to be? That's right. In Democrats versus Republicans. Fifty one Democrats, forty nine Republicans. Yeah, so the the margins will be very close when we start talking about 2023. One of the things I, I will say, you know, a lot of people asking, what what can I do? I'm just uh, one person and it, they can often feel powerless. And I'll say that there's a lot you can do. One of the things to know is that, um, f first of all, the focus is on Congress. Um, it's not on the presidency or the courts, which takes up a lot of news. It's on Congress. Right. And focusing on your elected representatives, they're the ones who write the rules, uh, your senators, your House of Representatives. Um, they are very sensitive and they survive by your vote. Um, and so you are a constituent and your stories really matter. And the art collects a lot of stories that can be very impactful. Mm -hmm. uh, but your voice does matter. It just has to be targeted at the right people. Number one, and I will say we have a great grassroots uh, platform that I'll plug. So if you go to the arc.org slash action, you can get signed up for all of our materials. You can help participate. Um, we do story collection, which um, we turn into blogs, social media. It's very useful for us on the Hill, but it's also useful for us to understand what's actually going on. You know, I'm just someone's uh, now I just sit in my basement because it's mostly work from home right now. Um, so I'm just one person sitting in their basement in Washington, D.C. It's really um, what's happening to you that matters. And, and you providing that information to us is invaluable in terms of what we can then do and how we engage in our work. So I take that um very seriously so it's important to hear your voice so if you go to the arc.org slash action um you can get involved um, the arc.org slash action yes yeah. that's great um because we as the you know people steeped in this day in and day out we don't want to be the only one telling the stories yeah. david's right it is so meaningful when any legislator hears from their constituents and hears their family story, understands what they need, that you may not come to them with a ready-made solution that says, I need you to pass this bill. I mean, it's great when you can do that, but just letting them know, I'm here. This is what our life looks like. My 45-year-old intellectually disabled adult child still lives at home with us mm -hmm. because there are no caregivers and I, you know, once thought to, you know, look at a group home, but it was horrifying to me. There must be other, you know, other possibilities for living arrangements. So anything you have to say, whether that's your story or not, whether you're someone who, you know, has a person that you're supporting in a group or institutional setting, whether you are, you know, somebody who is kind of tangential, but you know, you have stories of people that you're supporting, everything helps everything. And they will know what to do with those stories once you give them to them. Yeah, exactly. And I would say getting involved locally, whether it's an ARC or another organization, you know, if you can marry your stories to, um, so the next step is marrying your stories with an organization uh, and saying, you know, I'm part of this group. 
and this is my story and then this is the thing that needs to be fixed mm -hmm. they pay attention even more um, but you should never feel uh worried or embarrassed to reach out and most of the time you're talking to staff um so you don't have to worry about um sort of presentation you're meeting with someone important first of all they answer to you so you shouldn't worry about that anyways but you're you know we mostly meet with staff and um it's i think people are worried about the partisanship but i don't think that that's what you'll get when you meet with them because again yeah. they answer to you and that's something that's very important um to remember um and the information that you provide them is very important to their office. That doesn't necessarily mean, you know, you'll see a change overnight. Um, but if we all do that, um, they'll really start to pay attention. And I've seen them do things like reach back out when they have, you know, some issue that they're contemplating yeah. and they'll be like, Oh, Mr. Smith called us last year about this, you know, let's reach out and see what their family would think about something like this. And I guess I would be remiss to add here too, importantly for a lot of the issues that the families um, and, and people with disabilities that listen to this deal with, these are state level issues too. And there you have even more of a voice and it's even more powerful because your representative could be your next door neighbor. Uh, and it's they represent generally less uh, constituents, which means more access and Medicaid policy, we've, we went back to, we, we talked about waivers mm -hmm. and things that the state does. These are state programs. And so a lot of the rules are developed at the state level. And so if things like um, there are workforce issues or there are access issues, there's a lot that can be done in your state. And so working with your state legislature legislators is also really, really important. And, the, the, you know, the arc of Massachusetts, I know does a lot of great work and Mass yeah. Nela, of course, uh, uh, from the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys is, is doing great work, but um, don't ignore what's happening uh, at, at the state level because um, they can solve a lot of, of the issues here at the state level. Mm -hmm. It's not just a federal congressional issue. 100%. Remember, we started talking about at the beginning of this podcast episode about how fractured things are across the country. We in Massachusetts are awesome at a lot of things, but we haven't signed on to every possible waiver we could have because that costs the state money. It's a state and federal cost sharing mechanism. And so, for example, we have a, a kind of a black hole where adults with autism who need community-based supports uh, or residential supports, I should say, but don't have an intellectual disability. We don't have a waiver for that. We don't have a funding mechanism for that. We only have, you know, state plan services, which there aren't, there's not enough money. So they, those folks, that population does not get served. So that's just one example. There are a lot of other developmental disabilities or people with physical challenges who don't have a waiver or a funding mechanism and only rely on fractured, you know, fee for service payment mm. for each service they need for Medicaid and cobbling together a, a life support plan. And then, you know, state by state, it's so different. So we started the conversation in this way and we're kind of ending the conversation in this way. You do have to get involved at a state level, but it is my hope at some point, we take this up on a national level to make sure that all people with disabilities have the same access, no matter what state they live in. It really is so important. And I get that it's really different when you have a teeny tiny state like Rhode Island trying to compete with the budget of California, you know, um, but there's ways to do this. There's absolutely ways to do this. The other issue in the fractured system that we face, oh, I'm talking so much, sorry, but I get on my, you know, my soapbox about this is that people cannot move from state to state. Yes. I don't know if our audience knows that, but if you're in a nursing home or an institution, you can move from Massachusetts to California, to Hawaii, to Ohio, because your Medicaid services 
are institutionally based and they will just move with you. If you live in a group home here in Massachusetts under an ID waiver, you can't pick up and go to Hawaii and expect Hawaii to give you that same waiver and those same um, benefits. You may start all over again on a brand new waiting list. I know they don't like to call them waiting lists, but they are freaking waiting lists. That's what they mm -hmm. are, whether you call it prioritization or what, but that's what it is. Because these are not entitlements, we cannot depend on funding and therefore people get stuck. And if that's not a violation of people's civil rights, I don't know what it's. Yeah, what they call portability here in D.C. Is, is a major issue, the ability to travel state by state. And I understand that a lot of military families is a great example of people that get trapped um, in this system, you know, who, who have to move around quite frequently, and they're very impacted by this. It's, a, you know, something, again, that the ARC is very uh, sensitive to and is working on. And I think one of the important things about a, a place like the ARC, which is, um, and one of the attractions about it, is that we're going to keep fighting. Um, we're not going to give up. And we're going to continue raising this these issues over and over again, even if it's not the right time. There's a saying that uh, politics is the art of doing the same thing over and over again until one day it works. <laughs> and that can be um, incredibly frustrating. Um, uh, but the ARC is one of those organizations that does carry the torch for people to say, you know, this is something we need to continue to raise. You know, we have our priorities for this year because there are things that we think we can get done in Congress. But we're not going to stop raising things like portability or the workforce crisis or, you know, the SSI asset limits when they people weren't talking about them. Now they're talking about them, which yeah. is great. Um, the ARC's going to keep fighting. So that's um, something that's um, something that's really great about our uh, um, this organization. Um, and it's yeah. it can be frustrating, but, you know, you have to. Uh, you just have to continue working on it. Well, progress is, is slow, but it is, there is progress. It's yes. not zero progress. So um, we've only got like two minutes left, oh, yeah. but because um, I talk too much, but seriously, let's just talk for a, like a second about, so what's coming up next? We've got our three yeah. priorities of things you can get done right now that you're very hopeful you can get done right now. But then what's coming after that? What are next year's priorities for the ARC? Yeah, a, a lot of aging families was aging, aging parent caregivers on that list. Did I see that? Well, um, well caregiving is definitely an issue. I what I would say is that a lot of it will depend on what we can get in this end of year package. So mm -hmm. if we don't get money follows the person in this end of year package, that will expire in September 2023. And so we absolutely have to get that extended. If we don't get that extended, there won't be a real mechanism to help uh, transition people out of institutions into home and community-based settings. So we could actually start going backwards. So that's a major issue. Um, you know, the margins will be very close um, with Republicans taking the House, Democrats uh, holding on to the Senate. I worry a lot about um, the debt ceiling debate and whether Medicaid will be a part of that conversation. Uh, and so um, we're preparing for that fact. Um, but I would say one of the good uh, and more optimistic things to say is that home and community-based services is a bipartisan issue, right. um, something that's understood across the aisle. Um, there are uh people with disabilities in Congress. There's also a lot of people that have children with disabilities in Congress, right. including who will likely be the chair of what's called the House Energy and Commerce Committee, which says energy and commerce, but it does include Medicaid as well. And yes. um, they, uh, Kathy McMorris Rogers out of Washington State has a child with Down syndrome. She's very sensitive to these issues. And so these are bipartisan, um, but we might have some defensive work while trying to make progress on um, some more positive work. We've got the regulatory work that I have to dig into. Uh, streamlining Medicaid, I believe, is the one you're ref uh, referring to, but there's an, a couple of other ones um, yeah. coming out, so we could see some regulatory changes. 
I do think workforce will um, continue to, to be a big issue and a big concern. That is not going away. And so fighting for uh, workforce, yeah. um, improving the workforce and workforce dollars and professionalization, that's going to be a major um, battle. Some other things that the ARC never gives up on, the ability for people with disabilities to work mm -hmm. um, and having access and figuring out ways to better do that, whether it's raising SSI's asset limits, there are issues with um, what's called substantial gainful activity. This is a dollar threshold limit, um, both in terms of qualifying for certain benefits, but also in terms of how much you can work without losing them. And right. just so many people want to work without losing access to things like Medicaid. That's right. So, so one fix might be things like a Medicaid buy-in, you know, the ability, the ability to work and um, buy into the program. So that's another uh, item we're working on. And of course, I have colleagues that work on education and criminal justice Mm -hmm. uh, and healthcare and rights. So we're doing a, we're doing a lot of uh, 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 different work, but I do think that we'll be keeping our eye on trying to get extensions of things like money follows the person, uh, workforce, mm -hmm. and um, what's going to happen with the debt ceiling, and whether um, there could be uh, proposed cuts that we have to defend against will likely be part of what we mm -hmm. anticipate in twenty twenty three. Yeah, why do they always come for us when there are cuts? Why? Yeah, and I my hope is that some of this might maybe changing, and uh, we'll have to see. I do think that the public got a lot more educated on what Medicaid does and who it provides to. I think that uh, in many people's minds, it's a dirty word. It's welfare, and people not really understanding that this provides services to people with disabilities and uh, older adults. Um, and provides long-term care, and it's our only long-term care system. It's, it's yeah, didn't not, I read there's like 25% of the population is, is on some form of Medicaid? And if you look at pregnant, if you look at pregnancies, it's 50%. Um, and so maternal health care um, is a major factor in, in Medicaid. It, it provides, most, I believe, a majority of the the, um, the births in our country. So it's a it's a crucial system that I think is often less discussed. And so bringing out and being, you know, it, we all prefer something besides Medicaid, you know, it's means tested, it's fractured, it's state specific, yes. but it's also really important to hold on to it and improve upon it. And so mm -hmm. letting people know why letting your members of Congress and letting your state representatives know and understand that, hey, this is a system we use, it needs to be improved, is really important. You know, just a little FYI, those streamlined Medicaid proposed regulations were over 300 pages. Yes. <laughs> I read them all. I, I, I was, I wanted to throw up when I looked at the title and looked at the stack of paper that I had to weed through. Can you imagine our most vulnerable population has to deal with the absolute most sophisticated and crazy, you know, complex systems. It's, and this is why throughout COVID, you saw how many people dropped off both the social security and the Medicaid roles. I mean, it, it was yeah. horrible what happened to people. A, a small pet issue, because you mentioned, you know, one, the crisis in funding of Social Security, which is not something we worked on. It's that their lowest staffing level in 25 years, which is also causing a lot of chaos. Um, but we've seen a, a marketed decline in SSI for children and children not being on the SSI program, people not being aware of it and their access. Um, mm -hmm. These would be very low income families who have a child with a disability and they're just not aware that they could have access to this program and uh, potentially access to certain health care. Oh, but the minute they get into foster care, though, foster care agencies yeah. will go get those benefits. I'll take, and I'll take those benefits. Another pet issue of mine, as you know, um, <laughs> uh, with uh, uh, an, another very sad story about uh, foster, uh, foster youth with disabilities, often living in residential care facilities, um, and not living, you know, we often imagine foster care, um, people living with, uh, you know, a family. And often these are not children living with families and the foster youth agencies in the state are collecting their benefits. And they, when they age out, they have nothing. 
that that's it. They have nothing. I mean, having been a foster parent for several years, I can tell you that it's very hard to find foster families. And, yeah. you know, I had one person, this is going to be my last story. I had a, um, you know, an acquaintance complain to me about the woman down the street from them who um, was taking in all these kids and, you know, half of them didn't have good shoes and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, how can the state let that happen? And I said, because people like you don't apply. Mm -hmm. So next time you want to complain about that generous woman who made a home for some kids, think about making a home for somebody yourself. Yeah. So, yeah, you know me, I can't keep my mouth shut about that sort of stuff. Um, I have so run over our time. I love talking with David. He is one of my fave people on the planet. He is doing such good work out there in the community. I'm so grateful that you had time at the end of the year to fit us in. And I hope that people will be motivated to go to the ARC. Say it again. The, the ARC.org slash action. Thank you. And, um, and, and get some action alerts and to start getting more involved. It's not going to change unless we all take up a banner in whatever few seconds a year that you have to do something. Let it be that educate yourself and then, you know, get more involved if you can. So appreciate you. Thank you so much, David, for being here. It's always a pleasure. And it's great to speak with you. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I just wanted to take a second to say how much I appreciate you taking the time to listen to these podcasts. I'm having a blast doing them. And I hope that you're finding the content to be what you were really hoping. If you are, please take a second to leave a rating and a review. It's so helpful in getting this content out to people who really need to hear it. Thank you so much.